Are there ways that you feel like as a community, we can be more supportive of the LGBT community? I mean, I just like see the humanity in people like, come on, like these people. I mean, I think the the differences between these groups of people are not as extreme as people believe them to be. There's a human being there. It's a human being, you know, who deserves respect and self-determination as much as any other person. And I think the process of educating yourself is kind of like the role of, of an advocate. Yeah. So yeah, learn something. You know what I mean? Expose yourself to something. Get to know other people that are outside of the groups that you live in. This is for me and for you and for everyone too. Dr. Creedle, it's great to have you today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my second podcast, so I hope I uh, can provide some helpful information. Absolutely, absolutely. Introduce yourself. Tell the viewers a little about who you are, what you do, what types of populations you work for now. I'm a clinical psychologist. I work in the suburbs of, of Philadelphia in Sharon Hill in a community mental health center. So it's integrated primary care, which means I work directly with medical providers nurses and doctors and physician assistants. And the populations that I work with or that we serve at it's called AIDS Care Group, uh, three different populations I work with. In one department, we work with people with opiate addictions. It's called the Center for Integrated Medicine. And then we have AIDS Care Group or Sharon Hill Medical, which work with people that are, people that are living with HIV. And then I'm the lead psychologist in the LGBT department, which is called Mosaic Medical Center. So I supervise several interns, postdocs, and practicum students and staff members and work directly with the medical provider. We provide, you know, hormone replacement therapy, primary care, mm -hmm. and try to connect people with services so that they can have a, a better, a healthy life. Um, and all this took place during the pandemic, really, all this leadership stuff. So yeah, that's what I, that's where I work and what I'm doing now as a psychologist, primarily. My uh, clinical orientation is like a little bit of a journey. Like I kind of started out in undergraduate. In undergrad, I was a, I worked, at, I went to Rutgers. I was at the Douglas Developmental Disability Center. We work with people on the autism, autism spectrum. And it was a lot of like behaviorism. We did a, like uh, applied behavioral analysis. So we really, it was very structured. There was, we did like token economies. So like we would reinforce very specific behaviors and try to extinguish other behaviors with, with the people that we worked with, the students, the students at the, they were probably, they're teenagers. They used iPads to communicate because there were some nonverbal um, people on the spectrum. So it started out very behavioral. Then I, when I went to grad school, I was like, I had a behavioral base. But I was interested in expanding that to the, the cognitive behavioral therapy. So very sort of systematic, evidence-based, sort of like you are very targeted. You know, you think about what goals are, how your, how your worldview influences how you think and how you feel. And, you know, I kind of worked with people to help modify how they think and how they feel and to help change their emotions in some way. So that's where I kind of started. Then I moved into more integrative um, perspective. Schema therapy was something that I developed when I was on internship. I had interest in, which 
kind of pulls from, which is kind of like it has attachment elements, it has a psychodynamic elements. It really thinks about the, it really thinks about different modes that people can get into, like sort of like more childlike modes or coping modes where people sort of like isolate their emotions or they kind of like have a rageful mode and how those things sort of like those different parts of yourself show up in your relationship and uh, in your life. And kind of, we look back to your early life to see where they were built and how they can either be flexible or adaptive and not adaptive and sort of how they're functioning now and making changes there. I did act, which is a model that really is, is about, it's, it, it pulls in elements of mindfulness. It talks, it's about how you can have, you know, distance from your thoughts and, and not let them take over you, but learn how to accept with that, accept them and sit with them so that they are not sort of like totally rocking your world. And then as I moved into my postdoc, I, I got more acquainted with psychodynamic orientations and re- relational psychoanalysis specifically, which really looks at your underlying psychological themes and how they how they came to be from your from your past. You're looking at your relationship, how you feel about a client, how a client feels about you, who 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 a client reminds you of from their past, and how to work through those sort of like relational those relational sort of like themes with people. So so all that to say is I use all of that in my work with my clients now. If I have to take more of a cognitive approach, teach somebody some skills have them look at sort of like what the antecedents to their behavior were what the and what the consequences are and sort of like, you know, connect them to their, their mind and their body. And if I need to take a more emotion focused approach, I can do that. Um, so I use, I really pull from a lot. Recently, I've been a little bit more, um, more primed to use some analytic sort of um, techniques, but yeah, I, I pull from all of those things. I tend to, I've, I noticed that I tend to think from a schema therapy perspective, like mm. when I'm working with people, it just comes really naturally. But again, I think it's good to always be able to flex, to flexibly look at um, people because all of these like different interventions, they work um, the different people. And I think there are a lot of different ways that you can get to the same thing. Um, you can get to the same pro- promoting psychological health in people and insight and growth. You can get to those in a lot of different ways, and it's it's a good ability um, to have to be able to jump from one to the other to see people from different vantage points and vantage points just to see which one works. You know, um, I, I agree. I feel like there isn't like this one size fits all kind of therapy, right? Like everyone is unique, yeah. everyone's different, um, and so we as clinicians often have to figure out, all right, how can we conceptualize this case? And then also what would be the most effective treatment for this person? And, you know, it's not always easy, but eventually, hopefully we do get there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's like, I, I, all of these ways of seeing people, all the ways to conceptualize what's going on with them, um, are eventually, are there, they're trying to get down to like, how can you see like the humanity of this person? How can you mm-hmm. look at them to help them? And I think mm-hmm. also as much as I'm, you know, I'm talking about all this theoretical stuff, but like oftentimes I like throw that out and I'm like, how do I just be a human with somebody? Yeah. Like you really learning how to like, how can I be a, a human being in the room with another person? Um, a lot of times people just want to know that someone will care about them and have some warmth. And that's the stuff that really matters. And uh, 
it's funny because I, I feel like I have this conversation often with other clinicians and in terms of just self-disclosure, right? Like not letting the client know too much about you, trying to, I guess, the old school way of like being a blank slate. Yeah. And we, I think after we actually experience therapy and, and work with clients, we start to notice like, yeah, you know, maybe there is some room for the personal side of things or being a little more open and honest with yourself in therapy. And it doesn't have to be so, I guess, rigid in how you approach our clients. Yeah, I think it's, I think there is this looming, like, sterile medical model that people kind of work from this thought that you need to be you need to be a blank slate that so that people can project onto you right and i you know it makes sense you know why someone might might think that way given the history of psychotherapy and however i think from a modern approach i think from a approach that that isn't absent of color, that isn't colorblind, Mm. understanding who the person, the therapist is, understanding who you are, that you're not neutral. You come from, you have a perspective, you have a history, you have culture, you have sexuality, Mm. you have, you know, experiences in your life that color the way that you look at the world. And in order to build a relationship with somebody, they might have to know something about you you might you might disclose even at least emotionally like your emotional response to what's happening those are things that can be disclosed to people because it can it can be frightening and i i found that especially with marginalized populations i i think of working with black people working with lgbt people which i do primarily that there is a level of comfort that comes when they know something about you where you're from Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and again I think it's important to be thoughtful and deliberate about why you self-disclose and what you self-disclose. And if your self-disclosure is, is are you self-disclosing for yourself to make you feel better in some way to like, to make you feel like, Oh, you know, like I'm a black clinician. So if I talk about my black experience, this other person is going to like get closer to me. That's not necessarily the truth. You know what I mean? Just because you have a shared identity doesn't mean that somebody's going to be close to you, but I'm uh, going to connect well with you. And like, maybe, maybe there are other ways that you can do that. Maybe you prove it through your relationship, through you being there for somebody that you can be a reliable person. So you got to th- be real, you know, mindful of why you're choosing to self-disclose. But, you know, I think the, the, the days of, you know, being a blank slater for me, from my <laughs> perspective are like totally over, you know, totally. I don't think you can do that. Yeah, no, I I would totally agree. And I want to shift back to where where you mentioned about the traumas that they experience coming in. Is there a common theme that you see within these clients? In my clinical work, what I I think there's a lot of there's a lot of neglect, abandonment, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional in the populations that I work with, there's a lots of like isolation. Like I deal with a lot of people who have like schemas of defectiveness, that there's something wrong with Mm, me mm. for being different, um, Mm. imposed on, that was imposed on by the world. That's not, you know, nothing of their doing, but labeled as different. And, and these themes of not being, something's wrong with me. I'm tainted in some way. Mm. I can't connect with people. People won't, 
um, won't want to see me or be close to me because of what I am. And that reflects a lot of like maternal and paternal themes for people, what their parents did, how their parents treated them, how their parents didn't give them the love that they, that, and the nurturance that they needed because they were seen as different or unacceptable in some way or shameful in some way. Yeah. So I deal with a lot of that. Um, again, I see, I work from a schema model often and looking at going back to the past and looking at what this person's vulnerable child self went through and how they had to protect themselves and how those coping responses look now in the future, how the, some people aren't able to connect with people. There's a hypervigilance, you know, they can't trust, they can't really trust people because they were really um, hurt by people that were supposed to, they were supposed to trust who were supposed to be there for them. I see a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of personality um, issues, like really deep entrenched sort of things from early on that come up because of this, the traumas that people experienced in the past. So if I were to pull out themes of what, yeah. from the people that I work with, which is a very specific population of people and only represent a small swath of like the LGBT community, that's what I would say is relevant to the, the clients I work with. Yeah. And so I guess, where do you find success in your work? Like what is, what is like a successful outcome for you? Where do I find success in my work? Um, when somebody can be honest, can share their true emotional responses, positive or negative, mm -hmm. their truth where they feel safe enough to show the, you know, the underbelly, the, the parts of them that they're shameful of, where they can be their authentic selves. That's mm -hmm. where I find the successes in my work. Do, do you find a lot of, of patients might be afraid to come to therapy because they might be judged by their therapist or they're not accepted? Absolutely. I think the, it's funny, like the, the most common, the mode, I would say, number of individual of like therapy sessions is like one you know what i mean people come into their therapy sessions and you know they're like this felt terrible you mm. know what i mean i really exposed myself in this way this is a really strange experience to have for any for all clinicians you know that's yeah. like you, you see you do an intake and then somebody leaves yeah. um i think that when somebody's able to do that when somebody trusts you enough to to bear the emotional weight to work through the shame you know, of what's it like to, to reveal yourself to another person, to be truly intimate with another person emotionally. I think that that's an honor, I think. And, and for someone who has trust issues to begin with and to be yeah. able to create that rapport within 45 to 60 minutes, however long that session yeah. is, it's not easy, right? But we coming back to the humanness or the self-disclosure aspect, like maybe there are some things that that you need to show yourself or you have to show that you are vulnerable too, in a sense, right? To oh, make yeah. them feel more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to show your humanness. I think you have to show your humanness. I think that's the part of, can be a part of your treatment plan to, mm. for help, to help someone see that you are a three-dimensional human being. I think you have to be consistent. I think you have to be ethical. I think you have to be, like, I always think you have to be the, um, sort of like the parent 
You know, you got to be that consistent caregiver. I think that's that's how I think about myself. Have some consistency. And I, I, it can sound infantilizing in some way, but I don't, I don't like to think about it that way. But like having consistency, having reliability, standing up for what is right, not allowing some a client to be taken advantage of by the systems that you work in is a good parent in some way. And there's like mm. a, there's a limited reparenting. It's like kind of like a intervention, you know, various interventions from schema therapy, but you got to kind of like be consistent in that way, be reliable. Um, and that's, that's important. And in these uh, groups that you're running, so you said you, you do an HIV group. So these are patients who I are, do a, I do a, I run a gay men's group, gay um, men's group. Okay. And an HIV clinic and then a group for people that are trans and gender nonconforming. Yeah. Okay. And then you said you also do substance abuse too. Yeah, I do. I do supervision of substance use work, um, okay. uh, substance use therapy. But yeah. So I don't know what you've been noticing at your clinic for clients coming in with substance abuse issues. Is it mainly pills? Is it mainly heroin? Is it mainly psychedelics? Yeah. So we. So again, the the Center for Integrated Medicine is one division of AIDS Care Group. The Center for Integrated Medicine is for spe- specifically for people with opiate use disorder. So everybody that comes into that clinic has opiate use disorder, whether they're currently using opiates or they have, it's a Coke thing or it's a meth thing, where they are in their recovery, that's, you know, it's not a requirement that you're actively using opiates at the time, but like some people are on, are on medication assisted treatment, which is a form of treatment where people are given a medication that helps them with withdrawal symptoms. So like most people are, are on Suboxone, Suboxone or Vivitrol. No, we don't have methadone. We're not a methadone clinic. Suboxone, Vivitrol, Sublocade, Subutex, one of those medications. And uh, yeah, we see a lot of opiate use disorder, a lot of opiate addiction. That's the most dangerous of the departments because of how often people overdose. It's a scary, it's a really, it can be a really scary line of work because you are really dealing with people's lives because of how dangerous it is. And we do see, yeah, we see a lot of, a lot of different use in there, but it's mostly opiate use. And it's all this, like, it's all this dissociation. It's all this disconnection from people's bodies. It's all this disconnection from the world, this avoidance, um, affect tolerance, mm-hmm. like low affect tolerance mm-hmm. um, sort of stuff that pe- that we're dealing with. I think one one way that I like to think about addiction work and recovery or addiction psychology is it's this like this issue with like self-regulation in some ways a lot when when you dig into the histories of a lot of the people that we work with it's oftentimes they were given substances by people by their parents by friends at like really really young ages mm-hmm. you know what i mean i'm talking to somebody recently that was given given substances as a child, as a baby, mm-hmm. to like help them sleep wow. and help them regulate their emotions. Mm-hmm. And they never really learned to do that, a lot of people, because they were, because they have substances to help, you know, calm them down. And then I think you find there is sometimes an emotional, a self-regulatory arrested development around these ages where people start using. Mm-hmm. And then you're constantly kind of coming back to themselves. What happened at that time in your life? And their ability to regulate their emotions is representative of a ten-year-old because that's when they started. They started using in a lot of ways, and uh, learning to build that back up is 
difficult to impossible for people yeah sometimes so do you, you usually mostly use harm reduction what types of therapy uh, yeah yeah we're a harm reduction relapse prevention model you know mm-hmm. if you can did you how many bags did you use 20 mm-hmm. could you get mm-hmm. down to 10 mm-hmm. do you have narcan with you could you call me before you use? If you yeah. get the urge to use, call me. Maybe we can like sort of reduce your use in that way. Mm-hmm. How do we reduce the negative harmful effects of of your use if you're going to use? Yeah. How do we put things in between you um, you using? You know the abstinence approach versus the harm reduction approach. <laughs> like it's just like this this big like kind of split in like the treatment community. But we try to I think. We try to move around that, the abstinence approach, which can be, I think, very moralistic at times and really induce a lot of shame in mm. the people that we work with. And maybe it's just not for people. It's for, it's certainly for some people. They're like, I need to stop. I need a community of people that are going to tell me to stop, that are not going to, that I, I want to do it sort of like cold turkey. I don't even want to, I don't want to have a medication assisted treatment at all because that's a substance that's, right. what, you know, some um, from certain perspectives, but we certainly take a harm reduction approach um, where we work with people. And I think I found it to be um, successful in, in a lot of ways. Would you be able to share any successes that you've had recently? I'm working with somebody who has a hard time articulating their anger mm-hmm. and kind of like has some themes like from their childhood of not being able to do that, mm-hmm. specifically with their with their parents. Mm-hmm. And they really, they have, we've been really talking about it, how to, how to get through it. They've had encounters with their parents and have been able to articulate themselves to show, to assert themselves in like a really healthy way. And I've been really impressed by them recently and how much, and they, and I think they're impressed with themselves. You know what I mean? When somebody can really feel that, I think that that's, that's, that feels nice. That's a, that's a success in many ways, even though it feels terrible. You know, mm. it feels terrible for them to have to mm. yeah. articulate anger to their mother because that's that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing to do. And there are many people in their lives that were angry, that were violent and were out of control in, you know, the fear of like, you know, redoing that. So I think that that is. Or even just upsetting the parent, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And your, your, your relationship with your, your parents change as you get older. Right. And, you know authentic reactions i think i like the i like the perspective of like appropriately you know not to, not something that leads to negative outcomes or, or hurts people but you should be able to express a full range a full gamut of emotions in relationships that are important to you mm-hmm. and uh, anger is an emotion and it it has a place and it doesn't have to be seeped down it doesn't have to be like tamped down entirely and it doesn't have to be like totally managed or eliminated. Mm. There's a place for it. Yeah, I think that comes up a lot in, in a lot of the interviews that, you know, there is a place for anxiety. There's a place for sadness. Yeah. We're not trying to get rid of it. We just find ways to manage it, right? Yeah, to work with it, to accept it, to understand that it's going to ebb and flow. Exactly. Um, it doesn't have to, you know, we don't have to hold on to it um, so tightly mm-hmm. in, in some ways from a from an act perspective, you know.
Are there ways that you feel like as a community, we can be more supportive of the LGBT community? I mean, I just like see the humanity in people like, come on, like these people. I mean, I think the the differences between these groups of people are not as extreme as people believe them to be. There's a human being there. It's a human being, you know, who deserves respect and self-determination as much as any other person. And I think the process of educating yourself is kind of like the role of, of an advocate. Yeah. So yeah, learn something. You know what I mean? Expose yourself to something. Get to know other people that are outside of the groups that you live in. This is for me and for you and for everyone too. You know, I've lived in the the northeast cities dc and like jersey and new york and like in philadelphia that's where i've like that's where i'm from and like it's a very very specific swath of the american the the experience in the world i need to get up and get out of my bubble to like learn about other people's lives so i think that that is something that i think would is what i implore people to do is like you know, one, have some, have some humility, know that you don't know everything, that you have a lot to learn and open yourself up to other people's lived experiences. Yeah, that's what I would say. Absolutely. And I like that you mentioned educating yourself, right? For yeah. example, I feel like now there's this big cancel culture mentality, right? If a person sounds ignorant or they say the wrong thing, they're canceled. Yeah. But we don't take the time to educate them and be like, why don't you actually just go learn about this? instead of like beating the person down i yeah that's i mean i think cancel culture should be should people be canceled i don't know, I don't know what people did <laughs> on an individual basis cancel yourself whatever but i think as a therapist as a psychologist as someone who like dedicated themselves to like helping people change you know what i mean to like to cancel somebody to suggest that somebody can't like this person will never redeem themselves they can never redeem mm. themselves from what right. they've done i on my internship worked at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, it's an inpatient, like forensic psychiatric hospital. People that have like like sex worker I work with sex offenders, people that have like murdered their parents, people that like have done some really horrible stuff. And if I believed that this person should be canceled for the rest of their life, whatever that means, because of this thing that they did in a psychotic episode, out of a psychotic episode, just because they wanted to harm somebody. I don't know if if what I do would be worth doing, really. Mm-hmm. People can change. People can learn. People can yeah. adapt to new situations. That's what I believe. You know, I mean, maybe somebody might come up with a person who did something horrible and I'll be like, you know, F them or whatever. But, <laughs> but that's really, that's kind of the perspective that I come from, that people have deserve a, a chance to to grow really you you learn how to to exist to coexist with people who are really different from you or people that you don't agree with and help them and and see that they they're a human too that deserves support and authentic helpful relationships you know yeah absolutely i mean i think you know a lot of times we have to find some redeeming quality in, in people and i think we've stopped doing that for a long time like even just you know politically we can't agree to disagree it always has to be black and white and it's not always that you know it's not always like that there is gray areas right and we have to sometimes find that Mm -hmm. coming back to more present day how how do you feel like you've grown as a clinician yourself over the past six years when we first started grad school Mm 
Oh, well, when we first started class school, I was not a clinician. So (laughs) I think for me personally, again, I started out really behavioral and cognitive. I think, and maybe it's silly, it sounds strange to say as a psychologist or as a therapist in many ways, but how to like allow myself to be an emotional human being that Mm -hmm. you, who you are, what you feel in the, in the session, what you feel in your relationships with your clients is important. You know what I mean? Who you are as a clinician, as a person is important and it really should inform the work that you do. It's important to look inward in a lot of ways. And it really gives you permission to like, listen to your intuition and to use it, to use that, use yourself, your own personal experiences in the work that you have and in your work with your clients. I didn't really know how to do that or the importance of that until really I kind of took more of a my until I you know became a postdoc, I think, and kind of kind of breathe a little bit and was really just doing psychotherapy full time. Um, that oh wait, also I'm a person and like that's important in some way. That like moving away from that sort of like blank slate, that tabula rasa, you know what I mean? But yeah, I think that's that's I, that's what I would say is the the most striking thing, uh, my striking change from when I really early started. There's definitely things that, you know, we're taught in our programs that when we actually get into the real world and start doing it, we're like, eh, that doesn't really fit, you know, how I see it. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. And I think like in any, you know, in any training, you could be, and especially you could be like an A student, like you know how to conceptualize like down, you know what I mean? And then taking that when you see a real person, like everything changes, you know what I mean? Like everything really changes. You can't, you can't just read a book and total, you gotta be, you gotta live it. You really gotta have to like jump in there and it's not discouraging. It shouldn't be. I mean, it is discouraging. Um, You get in there and you like have your textbooks and you're like, I nailed like my psychodynamic class in grad school. And like, you're coming in and you're like, what, how do I do that? You know, um, I think that it's just, it's all like a part of the process, really. And as much as you practice, it's really like improv. And I think, I think my, um, I think what I really benefited from before I became a therapist was being a performer in some ways, mm-hmm. was kind of like um, being up on stage and kind of like, having to figure it out you know if i messed up i was on the wrong foot when i did marching band if i was like walk you kind of had to like adjust in in the moment and like you missed the line or something like that like i think having that experience to like to you have like kind of like an artistic task to complete as a therapist yeah but it's live and things are going to happen it's definitely i I like i like that you said that it's definitely an art you're right and there's definitely a lot of intuition involved i mean my old supervisor used to say this it's like you either have it or you don't right and i've noticed that i mean you hear horror stories like i had a client once tell me that their therapist slept on them one time and i was like what the heck like that's that's not good right on them on top of them sorry not slept on (laughs) uh-huh no no you you know what i mean Uh uh-huh uh-huh no, I had a that's cl- unethical. That's the one thing. <laughs> oh, is that in the ethical? Can't principles? do that. I didn't read it that in the. the I, I didn't read that in the APA <laughs> manual. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't yeah. know if you. I don't know if you've heard that one yet. If that was... 
I've not heard that one yet, but it certainly provides an opportunity for you to work through something with a client. You know, <laughs> it really does. What did my you know? sleeping remind you? Of? Yeah, you know, or I messed up. I messed up. Oh, that's I messed right. up. That's good. I messed You're right. up. You're absolutely I messed right. up. You yeah. got to be, I mean, <laughs> it's a horrible, just disrespectful thing, but I'm sure like, you know, there's something to heal from, an opportunity to heal from something. <laughs> Um, but don't sleep on your clients. No, funny. no, no, please, please, guys, don't, don't do that. Coming back to um, your experience with grad school, anything you can recommend to somebody who wants to get into the mental health field? I have a lot of people uh, messaging me about getting into psychology or asking me how things have been going. So I wonder if you've had anything that you've experienced that you feel like you know was important to know before getting into the field. I get some, get experience with people <laughs> is what I would say. Like be a, be a, a camp counselor, mm. be a volunteer to help people. Like, yeah. can you sit with people? Can you, do you want to, you know, talk to people for a long time? Do you want to get some leadership experience, perform? You know what I mean? I think like, that's what, that's what I would say. Get some experience talking to people to see if like if that's something you 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 find sustainable. Oh, to be a therapist like like I am, you could be in a I mean sometimes you could be like an assessor like somebody that does like clinical assessments or like be an organizational psychologist in some way and and be an experimental psychologist in some way. So like maybe for those things. But if you're looking to be a clinical psychologist who does psychotherapy like me, I would say getting getting ex getting experience with people, talking to people, having conversations is what I would, is my recommendation. And to talk to people, find people, find psychologists, find therapists of, of any, you know, of any educational background and talk to them about their experience. Listen to more episodes of this podcast, you know, <laughs> um, is what I would say. Yeah. But I think I got, I didn't, and I don't know, I, I knew, I was like, uh, I took a I took a class called in my junior year I think of uh, college called clinical and school psychology and I was like well I know what I'm gonna do you know <laughs> uh, that's class. that's so funny uh, I that's what yeah. kind of that's what kind of did it for me too it was my psych 101 class in undergrad when I was like oh that's early yeah yeah I was like wow oh so wait, but didn't you say college for you too it was junior year of college. So oh, I took junior. psych 101 and I was like, oh, I don't know. I was between bio and psych. And I was like, I guess I'll do psych. And then when, mm. once I figured out that I was, I, I was like, oh, this is what clinical psychology is. Mm, mm. Then I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do any school psychology because I'm not working with kids, but I will do this clinical sort of thing. Uh, and yeah. look and look at us now. Look at where we are. Psychology. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just I'm thinking about all those times in grad school when we would literally I think it was every semester I would be like I'm done I'm I'm not doing like yeah. I'm not gonna get by like that's it yeah I'm I'm, I'm quitting <laughs> I'm quitting why did I do this what yeah. what was I thinking like I, you know I would say for people who are interested in grad school it's like not about I mean, you I guess you got I don't I'm I'm smart I guess. <laughs> um, but it's not about how yeah. smart you are. It's really about like how much work you're willing to put in. It's like, it's like an endurance sort of thing. It's a marathon. It, it's, it's, it's a marathon. 
Like you really have to, I'm somebody who has like a learning disability around reading and it was an old, it was an undertaking to be able to mm. like get through all the material. Did I read everything that I was supposed to read for class? Absolutely not. Um, I, don't, I don't think however, expe- I don't think I expect you to honestly. I hope <laughs> but not. I tell you to. So, you know. um, but, uh, but no, but it's, it's kind of about like using your resources uh, finding a support group, finding people that, you know, yeah. uh, that, that care about you, that want to follow up with you, that uh, finding a community and sticking to it and having, again, like, you got to get out of that. I would advise people to get out of that. Oh, like, I need 100% on my tests, like right. fighting with teachers over grades and stuff. <laughs> like, that's not important. No one cares when you become an actual clinician about like, if you like get everything 100% right. And, you know, from under, it's a hard transition from undergrad to grad school to be able to do that for some people, but like, get over that. Just, you know, do your best and like move on and have like, learn to like, you know, accept, you know, that things aren't going to be perfect. And again, like, I don't think maybe some professors are looking for that, but like, I think they're really looking for even my my two favorite professors, favorite, I don't know, the, clo- the professors that I was closest to who are my, my chair and my second reader for my dissertation, I would like not do great in their classes, but we had a really good relationship. And there's some people that I know that I can like talk to and that like really thought highly of me, thought highly of me after, not because I got A's in their class because I did not, because of like who I was as a person and how I thought, how like I could think you know, and how I could build a relationship with somebody. Those are more important than getting a hundred in their classes, you know. Yeah. And I mean, there's also no denying, like, this is a very rewarding feel. At least it is for me. Like, I don't know about you, but it's, it's really, it depends on uh, what you like. It could not be rewarding for some people. (laughs) I am rewarded by it. I think some people, I don't think you're, some people aren't cut out for this. Yeah, um, but, type of but work then, but then why do they get it i never understood that because i see it i see it in some of the places i work at and like i'm like what did you get into this for then like what i don't, I don't know i don't get something it. something appealing about being a doctor i guess yeah you know, is that what it is uh, mm. about being in a position where people call you doctor or, or defer to you for to have for be for being an expert in some way you can get a lot of ego needs met through like you know having a dr in front of your name and um so so go know, get an M- go get an md where you could be colder <laughs> yeah sure like you know what let me not call out those doctors maybe. yeah yeah but maybe work on like you know like whatever that is for you why why you have to like you need to pe- people to believe that you have power that you're in this position of power maybe that's the thing to look for. go just go see a therapist yeah. go see- <laughs> um oh that's another thing i would recommend if you can work it out again this is really a privilege if you have the opportunity to have a therapist or to be in therapy while you are becoming a therapist mm. in addition to the supervision that you get i think i which i was not fortunate enough to have until i was a postdoc but having a therapist or being in therapy is the greatest like type of supervision mm. that you'll ever get and you'll really model i think a lot of your the way that you you work at least initially after after you're a therapist so get a get a therapist is a recommendation that i would give even if you can do it for a certain amount of time i think our school like had something where you'd have like six sessions or something i don't know i never did it but i think that is something that i would recommend to people uh, you have if you're like is therapy do i want to be a therapist get a get a therapist and see how, how it feels 
Did any of your like family members or community kind of give you some backlash about wanting to be a therapist? Um, did anybody in my family? No, 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 no. I don't think anybody. What do I think about me being a therapist? No, I don't think I got any backlash. I get like requests, like, "Can you see my friend? Can you talk yeah. to my?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's even better. <laughs> no, I didn't get any backlash or anything like that. I think they were just like I. I don't know if I'm in my immediate family, like, you know, I'm going to get, get a doctorate. I think that there's significance of like mm. being a black man and getting a doctorate like in my family. So I think like that's what they were like, like that's what they were proud of. Um, so yeah, no, no pushback for my family. It's, it is very rewarding to, to do what I have to do what I do. It is a gift to be able to do what I do. So. It really is. And people actually appreciate that. I don't know about you, but I'll get calls for potential clients and they'll be like, thank you for what you do. We really appreciate it, yeah. especially from my own community, because there aren't a lot of Persian psychologists yeah. who are male, right? And they're like, wow, yes. good yes. stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I get that at like, sometimes I go to didactics and stuff like that, or like yeah. CE things. And it's like, I see you, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, like yeah, being a black man, being a man as a, as a, being a yeah, man of color, I think as a therapist, uh, people appreciate that. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. Uh, our field is filled of like white women currently um that's <laughs> the people that are in uh, grad school that's you know they're becoming psychologists at least that's you know my in my experience it, i mean is I it is it because like that like, like that old school theory that f women are just more emotional you know beings or like what what is that about i couldn't tell you it was all it was all white men at first you know what i mean it was, <laughs> it was all white right. men that were psychologists there was, some, there was a shift there was yeah. a shift i don't i can't i couldn't tell you i don't have a my vantage point isn't that good i can't like look at the history of psychology enough to give you something informed but the the demographics has have shifted <laughs> i guess to finish off just tell us a little about what's next for you um what can we look forward to so i you know i i recently moved into this leadership position where i'm working as the lead lgbt psychologist mm -hmm. um Oh yeah, I guess I'm a bad, uh, bad LGBT psychologist, and so my pronouns are he/him for anybody who is concerned, um, who would like to know. Um, and um, so that's what I am, and it's being I'm a supervisor now. I'm a supervisor now. That's a that's a skill to wow. to really to hone, you know, to yeah. to hone. Yeah. Um, how's that? How's and, that been? Great. I really love it. I yeah. really really love it. I nice. really love it. Honestly, it's something that I want to get good at. Uh, also, Nancy McWilliams, who wrote Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, is a book that we we got in our psychodynamic course. She just that. came out with a psychoanalytic supervision book that I'm like reading through, which I really love. I am trying to get good at this, and it's very rewarding to teach somebody else how to be a therapist. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Sleep teach them not to sleep not to sleep or if you sleep how to uh how to repair how to repair how to repair the how to repair the rupture in the in that um yeah so that's that's what's next for me maybe you know the thoughts of doing some more private practice work but i'm not trying to do all that immediately but it will you know eventually i'll have some more more time for private practice but i'm just like moving into this leadership position sort of like 
feeling good about it, my supervision, my team management, and cultural humility trainings into my skill base. Also schema therapy. I do like schema therapy trainings often. So nice. Yeah, that's what I'm awesome doing amazing amazing well i want to thank you so much dr creedle for coming and speaking with me today it's always good speaking with you and catching up with you and keep doing the great work that you're doing it sounds like you guys are doing an awesome job there yeah don't for uh, thank you very much for having me but don't forget about me when this pops off and you become famous <laughs> <laughs> no i never i never forget my friends no no uh, <laughs> uh, I, I like to bring everybody up with me you know what i mean i it's that's yeah, how i that's bring how us I up i want to again thank my guests for joining us today if you have any feedback for the podcast or just general comments about the show email me at mindsetpods at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Dr. Jonathan Rabani. We'll see you next week for another episode.